What episode number is it, Mac? <clears throat> 240, I 241, think. 241. 241, yeah, yeah, okay. 241. Speaking municipally, and what's that sound? On a train. Welcome back to episode 241. We are on location on the Valley Line LRT. Literally crossing the Tawatna Bridge right now. We don't know how this is going to work, so you will join us. And also joining us is a long slew of guests. Carrie Houghton McDonald, branch manager of ETS. Hello. Councillor Ann Stevenson. Hello. Mac is here as well. I am here. Ashley Salvador, Councillor from Ward Maitee. Hello. And the co-organizer of the train party, Mike Konecki. <laughs> Hello there. And the new managing editor of Taproot Edmonton, Tim Querengesser. Hello. Hello. Yay. Yay. Thank you. Uh, there's Lauren Boothby's beeping, if there's you just beeping. heard it. Uh, there's gasps from the counselors. They don't want to be a part of this any longer. <laughs> so let's get started with, I think, just like haranguing the branch manager of transit all about transit. Sure and we'll thing. start with softballs. Okay. How excited are you that the train is opened? Thrilled. It's incredible. And I have to say kudos to you as well as Mike for organizing that event. Unofficially, <laughs> the launch... Uh, bright and early on that Saturday morning. It's a memory that stuck with me forever. It was beautiful. Didn't think we'd see the numbers that we saw. And when I turned the corner and saw the hundreds of people, it was just really overwhelming and just a lovely start to the the entire service. Might as well have been the official launch, given how many officials and dignitaries and the transit folks and everybody else came out. It was awesome to see uh, that YouTube made some calls and brought some cake and some coffee and everyone came to celebrate. Uh, so I showed up at 4.30 a.m. and there were already like 30 people on the platform that had beaten me there. I think ballpark estimate, we probably had 550-ish people on that Incredible. train at 5.15 yeah. a.m. Yeah. So exciting. So we got the press release, you know, when everyone else got the press release. You're the branch manager of ETS. <laughs> when did you find out that the ba Valley Line was opening? I had an inkling that it was coming, and we had official word about a week prior to the launch, so just in time. Why didn't you email me about that? <laughs> <laughs> Tightly under wraps. <laughs> and we, we speculated in the last episode that the grand opening in the new year was just about timing and people's schedules is that what it is or is there something else we're waiting on for the line i think it was really about wanting this to be community-led and not need to have a lot of kind of bureaucracy and layers you know on top of a formal plan and just let it be more grassroots and this is about riders this is about the community and all of these people on the train with us right now uh, and i'm just really happy that it unfolded in that way and yes we had lots of staff there and um, you know, lots of different kind of representatives, but it was all informal and right. it was just there to take it all in and kind of feel the excitement with everyone. Well, speaking of the community, Anne, you're obviously a city councillor. You've probably heard from the community, maybe. Uh, I don't know what your inbox looks like, but what have you been hearing so far now that this train is opened and Terminus is in your ward? Yeah, I mean, it's more what I'm seeing uh, firsthand. The number of people just sort of pouring off the trains, uh, having a new way to get to downtown. It's incredibly exciting to see. And I think, you know, not not to minimize the frustrations. Um, of course, it would have been great if this had opened earlier. But, you know, the day after it opens, we, we never hear again about the delay, right? It's, um, it's infrastructure. The lifespan of this infrastructure is 100 years. So uh, a few extra months, a few years in the long run uh, what matters is that we got it right i think waiting for this moment waiting for this time was the right thing and it's wonderful to see it running so smoothly so ashley i mean you obviously don't 
have the ballet line running. Wait, d- hold we your are t- in my wardrobe. <laughs> <laughs> as this we look is, at Strathern Station and speaking municipally host embarrass himself, Ashley, the train runs through your ward. Are you hearing basically the same thing as Anne? Or? You know, the train runs uh, through the vast majority of the south side of Ward Métis, and um, I am hearing overwhelming optimism and excitement. I, I actually spent several hours on the train the opening day from 5 a.m. till like <laughs> 2 in the afternoon. Just talk to people, and so many people were expressing um, their excitement. They've been waiting a really long time, and people who have lived right next to the line, uh, people who have moved to these neighborhoods in anticipation of the line, uh, finally get to ride the train. Whether that's commuting, um, actually met a lot of seniors who have never been downtown or have not been in a decade or more, which is just shocking to me. But it's because they haven't had access. So those are the types of stories that really pull at my heartstrings and um, speak to the importance of the work we're doing. Welcome to the new managing editor of Tabard Edmonton. Tim, you've been talking about this for years. I know you live in Bonnie Doon now. I do. Specifically because of this line, at least in part. Absolutely. When we were looking for where to live, when the pandemic forced us to have... Oh, we're having some honking here. Someone's in the way. Uh, Train's going nice and slow. This is... Good operation uh, by uh, transit staff. Smooth, smooth. Oh. It was just a close. It, it's not. It's a. It's a close call. Anyway, no big deal. Um, yeah, when we were looking for a place to live, uh, like when the pandemic forced us out of our small condo uh, because we were working from home and didn't have enough room, we made a conscious decision to only look at places that would be served by the line. And Bonnie Dune was definitely. There are three stops that I can get off and walk seven minutes to my house. So uh, I'm incredibly well served, and yeah, it is. It has markedly changed my life in six days. You mentioned Tim when we were talking earlier that you still see the buses go by. So that's those are still running. Were you taking the bus before the train opened? My wife was taking the bus. I wasn't working downtown. Uh, she was often passed by by a full 500x. Uh, they won't pick you up if they're full, and that's a common problem along that very busy corridor. Uh, it's refreshing to get out, Next walk to work with my day. wife and see that we see a bus, we see a train, uh, there's scooters and e-bikes and other things. There's all these options now, this layer, layered uh, option about how to get around. It, it was like we were both remarking how it just felt easier to like just live here. Yeah. Well, that started as a adjacent to a transit complaint. So, Carrie Haunt McDonald, time to talk to you. Um, we have now Valley Line replacement buses, which don't replace the Valley Line because it exists. Um, when are those going to disappear? And how was the decision made to choose a time like that? So the plan is that those uh, hours will stop running in February. So we wanted a little bit of overlap and we're going to encourage riders to make the transition to Valley Line. Um, we have it in as a service package for council to consider in the fall budget deliberations, uh, which is a little awkward because I have councillors here <laughs> right now. <laughs> but I'll just say we're really hoping that we can sneak in <laughs> some funding opportunities to make that happen. So it'll become growth service hours in the network. And I know in a previous episode, you talked about uh, the gap that we have in service hours. So thanks for that. We have 260,000 annual hours that we need for the bus network just to meet our service standards. So there's quite a big gap. This would actually provide us with about 70,000 hours that can go against the 260. So it's a really easy way to add the service because we already have the operators. We already have the buses. Um, so there's no capital required attached uh, to this request. Also along the line of buses, uh, people are wondering about the reconfiguration of the other buses. So not the replacement ones, but you know the ones that go through the neighborhood and everything like that. Is that 
to be done? Is there something to figure out there? Is there any timing you can share with us? So we're not doing another bus network redesign. No, not a, not a full one anyway. <laughs> no. um, but, you know, I think just looking at the data across how people are navigating, and I loved your story talking about having options, because that's what it's all about, is just having all of those different options to support mobility. And I'm excited about the zoning bylaw renewal, excited about getting rid of parking minimums. We're just, we're making these really, really important steps forward. So the planning analysts that we have will look at the data, figure out what kind of adjustments need to be made to ensure people have all of those options and that they're working well together. And a great example, we were just talking about our capital line and looking at people who are navigating between Valley Line and Capital Line. Well, how do those frequencies connect to one another? How long are you waiting? What does it look like in the peak, off-peak, weekend service, et cetera? So we're, we're excited to dig in. I wonder how the options uh, include cars or not. So I don't know how to get at this except for a personal example. My in-laws live in Millwoods. I can drive there in 20 minutes from my house downtown or I can take a half hour train to the Millwoods Town Center and a 45 minute bus to where they live, which seems like the option is not steering me toward transit, yeah. you know? Um, is that something that people should expect will ever change or is it more about, well, you can fit 750 people on this train per car, like there's just about capacity and, and yeah. quantity. Troy from the booth here, and first let me start off by saying what a fantastic idea it was to have seven people on a train with a ton of background noise. This makes the edit very, very easy, and I'm absolutely loving my life this Thursday evening. But also, uh, it gives me the benefit of being able to fact check. The official numbers posted by the city and Transed are 275 per car for a total of 550 per double car value line LRT car couplet. Uh, we've heard numbers as high as 750 from people who seem to know what they're talking about. So I think maybe the answer is, who knows, a bunch of people can fit. I describe it as we need all the things and all the things work together. So because of the gap we have in service hours, we're being stretched. So we're not able to meet the service standards that council approved and that we were excited about. By adding more service, which means more buses, more service hours, we can provide better connections. So that means it won't take as long. And with investments in bus rapid transit, which I'm really excited about, we can create mobility hubs. So you can have these linked trips together helping you get to your endpoint destination. Now, will it always be perfectly matched so that transit becomes the fastest option? Probably not, but it's about giving people the option. So that particular day, if you choose to take your car, I'm not mad at you, yeah. <laughs> right? It's about having options available. But if you do want to take transit, it should be fast, convenient, safe, reliable, all those good things. And through investing in the bus network, we're going to complement and supplement this wonderful LRT service that we have. So how do you stay so positive? Because you get people like me and Troy asking hard <laughs> questions about what's changing. And it's like, we just have this win. Let us have the win. <laughs> Does it feel like there's just always another thing for transit? Is that Well, for life? sure. And I think my role would be to always see the future state and, mm. you know, the incremental steps we need to take to get there. Yeah. I'm super proud of the investments we've gotten in the last, you know, 18 to 24 months. They've been just like huge That's wins for us as staff yeah. to know that council has been able to prioritize transit very, very clearly in their language in these meetings. And that's been super rewarding. So to map out a future state is really rewarding and enjoyable to do. Uh, and I just see that as part of my role. I'm, I'm asking if I can have a yeah, yeah. jump in here. Yeah, I mean, you're the boss now. So. We're, we're <laughs> I'll use this opportunity. We're at Bonnie Dune. I live in Bonnie Dune. This is the, the stop. If I were to get off here and walk, I would walk through a parking lot. Three parking lots, actually. So 
what is what is the thinking behind the like the the connective tissue to the LRT stations? I know some of them are really great, uh, and then some of them have a lot of challenges. So. What's the, what's the roadmap for that? No, for sure. And I think some of them have particular challenges for people with disabilities, for those of us with young kids. If you have any type of assistive device, you know, we're working with a network, I think, that's been piecemealed and patched together. And decisions made back in, you know, let's say the 70s and 80s are not the decisions we would make today. So there's a lot of catching up to do, a lot of renewal work. I'm so proud of Stadium Station. I know some people maybe aren't as enthusiastic as I am, but just the open sight lines, the integration, you know, my son and I were like using scooters and we're hopping on the train and it's just this like really accessible, welcoming uh, station and that to me is the vision for the future that we as we do renewals and have opportunities to make changes making it more people-centered and thinking about all of those different perspectives well and I think this also speaks to the partnerships we need to have with uh, Edmontonians with private landowners as well um, a lot of these change a lot of these parking lots that you walk through that we just saw are on private properties so how do we work together with with those folks to um, really encourage I mean I would suggest that building a phenomenal mass transit train stop right in front of your property is a pretty big gift um, and hopefully incentive <laughs> to to see some redevelopment on those sites Kingsway would disagree <laughs> we um, <laughs> We see some great examples of that. I think about Meadowlark uh, malls. So what used to be service parking is now actually some medium-rise residential. I think we could see that start to happen in, in lots of these other pockets as well. Shifting gears almost entirely, now that we have two counselors. Shifting gears doesn't feel like the right thing on a train. <laughs> Swapping the rails with the lever, <laughs> indicating to the operator that we need to switch tracks. Whatever metaphor you want to choose. Um, Switching tracks, yeah. One of the items that came up recently that um, I lost my podcaster card um, litigating on the podcast was about youth transit. Now, very recently, uh, Edmonton Transit recommended that we not provide free unaccompanied transit to youth under 12. And council said, yep, sure, that sounds good to us. Uh, that, with, with the reason being that they would rather prioritize service delivery, if I can add a bit of color. They're nodding, so I think I'm on the right track here. I have the edit, so maybe I'll <laughs> cut it out. Um, but I was wondering if you could talk us through a little bit the inclination there, because I know I found it a surprise, and many of our listeners did as well. You know, for me, uh, I really appreciated the, the robust discussion we had around the council table. Um, obviously, we want uh, young Edmontonians to be able to, to hop on transit and, and develop that habit early on. Um, but we also learned from, from the amazing folks at ETS that... Uh, enhancing service overall is truly what is going to improve ridership across the board. Um, you know, there are a number of, of tools that we have in our toolbox and, and levers, if you will, that we can pull uh, to increase ridership, and, uh, and that wasn't on the top of the list. Um, doesn't mean that we should not look at it in the future, but given, given our limited resources at this time, I think we have to be going for, for the biggest return on investment. Yeah, couldn't agree more in terms of uh, us having to be strategic. And again, if we have done the other 10 things that will improve ridership and we're moving on to the 11th, absolutely, let's let's do that. Um, I think where, where I gain comfort as well is that we have a number of other programs that reduce those barriers. So uh, low-income transit passes, just providing fares um, in a targeted way rather than a, a blanket way. So um, one of your council colleagues, Councillor Aaron Paquette, brought up the pretty salient point that we've heard this before insofar as we'd rather prioritize investments in our transit system other than this, uh, and then we promptly do not 
do that thing. We do not invest further in the transit system. What sort of accountability mechanism is going to hold you to actually improving the transit system rather than just not funding this and also not funding transit? Not awkward at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I mean, the answer that comes to mind is the election, right? I mean, I think... Um, Increasing transit uh, service was was a huge priority of mine. So that's that's what voters will have to see and look for. Um, yeah, I don't know what other accountability is there. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously the the election. I think we we really need to hold ourselves to account as well when it comes to our budget discussions. I think this council in particular has been very clear that public transit is a priority. It is a core service, and it is something that's going to help us um, achieve a bunch of our other goals when we look at climate resilience, equity, inclusion, uh, attracting and retaining talent to our city, building a prosperous, economically viable city. Transit is the backbone of that. Uh, so. If we are if we are serious about achieving the city plan, we have to be serious about funding transit. And I and I would say our track record to date, I think, shows that we are uh, are taking those steps. Next stop, Davies. We are uh, coming to Davies, as you may have just heard. And everyone says this is such a beautiful station. Uh, I want to know if you actually like it, because to me, it seems like the complete opposite of what this line was promised to be around low floor. Um, the floor for our enterprising listener is hundreds um, of feet in the air. Yeah, we're, I mean, we're elevated. It is a beautiful station, and I love the design and everything. But it seems like an accommodation for cars, which yeah. it, I guess it is at the end of the day. I think but. it's an integrated station. Obviously, we have oh, our bus goodness. service with the bus service uh, integrated with LRT. It is a bigger station. And I tend to think of it as future-proofing. So we're designing the station not necessarily for today, but think ahead to a city of, you know, one, one and a half million residents. Think of a city that, you know, yeah. continues to grow and densify. And maybe right now what we see as set aside for car parking can evolve. So right. it doesn't mean this is forever. It means right. we have this space. The station's multi-purpose. I like seeing retail kiosks. I didn't I like even know that seeing, was there. I yeah. saw that on Twitter. That was interesting. It's cool. Like, yeah. I hope at some point, wouldn't it be fun if there was, like, an outdoor farmer's market nearby? Right. Like, we can repurpose spaces, but when we're building these things today, it's for the future. So it's not just about the needs today and how it's being used. It is also so cars can keep moving and come and park here, though, right? Like, it serves a real car-focused function at the moment. Well, Am I we, totally wrong on that? Well, we spoke earlier about choice. And so uh, driving a vehicle is also a choice. And to have a choice to drive part of the way downtown rather than all the way downtown, I think is an excellent one. Yeah. So one of the things we've heard about on the Capitol Line was uh, sort of, I won't say antagonism to park and ride, but an idea that park and ride shouldn't necessarily be a core component of our transit system because yourself driving right that doesn't necessarily remove cars from the road it doesn't necessarily create one car households and we saw that at uh, century park where it's not really a park and ride anymore there's some parking stalls but fewer than uh internet commenters would like davies 1300 cars as a park and ride right now in the middle of a transit line which is an odd choice do we see all those stalls staying there in perpetuity is this always going to be a parking lot or is this eventually going to be an urban utopia <laughs> I would, like it is I would I would call it an interim use. Um, I a, think a permitted interim use though, right? We permitted this parking lot? I believe so. Good. <laughs> <laughs> 
so you know what I what I would love to see in the future is obviously high density residential development. That is not going to happen next year. Right. Uh, and so in the meantime, if there's a way to get people on transit, to increase ridership, you know, all for it. Yeah, and I mean, when we look at projects like this, they are they are conceived in very long time scales. This is an intergenerational piece of infrastructure, um, and I can absolutely see that uh, that parking lot turning into an incredible transit-oriented mixed-use hub in the future. Uh, I don't want to lose track of this question. Thank you. Um, if you're saying that council has a, a strong mandate or strong focus on on public transit. One of the observations that you would make if you were looking at rail development across the globe when looking at the Valley Line is that we spent a lot on it and that it has some really uh, very high-priced elements, such as Davie Station. So what is the plan to really build out you know, more of this? Once you ride this train, you wonder, why can't we have this everywhere? And it feels like Edmonton sees this as one and done, or these are really big projects. We're going to do this once in a while. We need like to build this in perpetuity. We need mm -hmm. to keep going. So how do we build this faster, cheaper, and better? Yeah, you know, I, I we're certainly not one and done. I think our, our full LRT network build out is really, uh, it's very ambitious. It's a great plan. I think it's a, a very logical plan, the plan we need to do. And I mean, I think we are building new rail as we speak, aren't we, in terms of the extension from Century Park? Um, you know, this is where we do need our other orders of government to come in and support us. It's not something we can we can afford on our own. Um, and I do think, again, back to Carrie's point, it's a both and. You know, we, we really can't prioritize one over the other. We need both. We need rail and buses. Um, so ensuring that we continue to keep that balance is going to be the most successful thing. I mean, for me, I think the biggest... Something that I, I, I'm going to say this, and I know I should actually have a conversation with the people about this before I say this on a podcast, <laughs> but, you know, I think there could be value in us looking at the north extension from Blatchford, recognizing the huge hurdle that CN yards are. Um, and I think that if we are, and Carrie can weigh in, but are there other ways we can think about how we, how we make that leap and how we get uh, north? Um, so those things, I think, but but evergreening those plans, continuing to look to the opportunities. And I think the really critical thing is being ready for those opportunities, because when funding comes up, we need to have the plans in place. We need to be ready to go. Um, so, yeah, I think we're headed in the right direction. Well, I mean, except maybe having to take a small detour. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe one thing that I would add, you know, when we're thinking about um, large scale transform transformational investments like LRT, we also need to think about the entirety of the network and the the system that we are building that will feed into that. So um, LRT as a backbone, fabulous. We need, we need to amp up uh, on the bus side, I'm really excited about the investments we're making into BRT. We funded design work for B1 and B2. For all the, the transit nerds out there, you can go look. It's, it's super exciting. Um, and, and I would also say we're making investments into active transportation so that uh, people can, can take multimodal journeys across our city. So it's not just about LRT. It's about creating that, that comprehensive, holistic um, public transit network. So, Anne, you mentioned you, the other orders of government need to come to the table and help fund, and I can recall Mr. Harper did on the condition of a P3. That was why the ride we're on right now is operated by TransEd. Um, Council has had mixed opinions about P3s in the ensuing decades since, but there was no federal mandate that Valley Line West had to be funded by a P3, and yet Marigold Partners is building it. 
are we to take this as support of the P3 LRT build-out going forward? You know, the energy line or the North Valley line or the North line to St. Albert. Can we expect those to be built as public-private partnerships? You know, I was a huge skeptic of P3s. Um, I, I didn't think that that was the right model for infrastructure development, but I have to say, you know, as frustrating as these delays have been, they did not cost the Edmonton taxpayer a penny. Um, when the girders were cracked, we did not have to pay for those repairs. So in that sense, we, we enjoyed some really significant protections throughout the construction project. I think with Valley Line West, uh, it's a different type of Next, P3 project. It's not as, um, there's sort of different uh, degrees to which you can be a P3. This is a more scaled back P3. Um, I think, again, we have a lot of uh, contractual guarantees in that that are, I think, huge wins for the, the taxpayers of Edmonton. P3s are on that sliding scale. And I mean, I still have concerns about P3 models, to be quite frank. Uh, I, I absolutely agree that there are protections that are built in when it comes to contractual obligations and, and the investments of Edmontonians being protected. At the same time, um, the, the frustrations around uh, lines of sight to accountability have been have been regular concerns that I've heard from Edmontonians um, and, I, and I share those so that's something that I'm going to be following really closely to see what that uh, that scaled back model looks like for West do you want it do you want to switch to something a little more fun now yeah Mac what'd you have in mind <laughs> well I mean, I don't want to miss this opportunity sitting here with Carrie and the councillors who know a lot more about this project than we do. What are some of the things that we've not heard about yet? I, I understand there's something to do with springs, for example. <laughs> well, a fun fact, um, the section of track built between 99th and 97th Street uh, is on springs. Um, and that was done to ensure that there weren't any vibrational impacts on the wind spear and the citadel. And it's one of those things where, again, this is why I'm glad I'm not an engineer, because when you make mistakes, it's not just you erase something on a piece of paper. It is built and physical and very real. And yeah. you have to epoxy some cracks. Right? <laughs> the, so when they tested it, they had instrumentation inside those two buildings to measure vibrational, and it was flatline. There was absolutely no vibrational transfer from the track. So hugely successfully delivered. Um, and a great, great outcome for those two cultural institutions. Well, and that's fascinating. Mike, yeah. you had your watch going on the way here, and in the tunnel that we've heard some reporting can be loud. We didn't crest really 75 decibels the whole way. Uh, I think I think the loudest we got was about 79, 80 decibels, which is still my my Apple Watch does not say loud until about 84, 81. Hold it under the doors as they open. We'll we'll <laughs> measure the beeping. Yeah, stand under that bell and see what's there. So we are at the Millwood station right now. I'm hopeful the train will just turn around and we won't have to get off. It just reverses the other way, right? Right. Okay. So we don't have to leave. That is good news for us. Uh, which also means that we don't have to end the podcast just yet. We No, we've got to ride back. <laughs> we do have to ride back. We do have to go back. Carrie, any other interesting factoids come to mind that transit nerds would appreciate that haven't come out yet? The walkway. So one of the things I love about the Millwood stop is the connection over to the transit center. Uh, it was a community-led grassroots initiative to paint uh, the walkway. So yeah. when you're connecting between them, you can thank residents in Millwood. And Councillor Tang reached out saying, do you have any issue with us if we wanted to do this? And we were like, no, we'd love to support it. 
I said, we can actually give you the paint. <laughs> right. So it was really fun. It was just a simple little request, but it brightened it up. I think they're going to do a refresh soon because it's faded a bit. Yeah. And if there's anybody out there who wants to do these types of things, please reach out to us. Like, we think they're super fun just I, to brighten it up. On the weekend, I came here and I totally went off the wrong end of the platform because I just went <laughs> through parking lots or something. But on the way back in, I realized there was this beautiful yeah. you know, pathway, and that was really great. Uh, one of the things we've talked about on the show before is percent for art. Did we get $180 million worth of art, or is that 10% or 1%? What, what is the amount here? Tell us about the public art along the line. I don't have a lot of details in terms of the total value of it. I don't have the total value either, but I can say that there is really fantastic, unique art at each of the stations along the line. Um, there's also a really cool map that uh, that has been produced that shows each of the stops and sort of the story behind the art. Um, and, and my understanding is that the, the artwork and installations are unique to each of the stations and kind of tell a story about that particular area of the city. So I would really encourage people to check it out. Train of oh, right. Um, train of train of Yay! Uh, <laughs> put a loony in the dad joke jar. Um, so, uh, not to uh, end the fun segment with more complaints, but I imagine, given that <laughs> this, is, this is transit, you know, you probably do get a lot of complaints uh, yes. as the branch manager. I <laughs> notice you're not on Twitter anymore. I can't think that the two might be related. Oh, in they're some totally related. <laughs> uh, but None of us are on Twitter anymore. Yeah. <laughs> We're on a Valley Line train, and ETS doesn't manage this. Transit design, built, and crucially operates this. So if a citizen was to complain about the Valley Line, perhaps the murder doors that don't stop closing when you're in them, they wouldn't be complaining to ETS. What is the process for resolution of those complaints? Yeah, so it's really easy because it's contacting 311. So through 311, our agents then decide, is this an element that ETS is responsible for? Or is it something Transed is? And then they directly feed the information over to Transed if it's one of their items. And then Transed uh, is responsible for closing the loop on it. And what sort of accountability do we have there? Because I know, you know, we didn't know when the train was opening. We didn't know why yeah. there were delays. If, for example, I send a complaint to Transed and they promptly throw it in the shredder, do we even know if that happened? What sort of reporting or contractual obligations do they have to address these complaints? Yeah, so there is a contract in place, obviously, that stipulates a lot of different things. And then we have our payment processes, and those two things talk to one another. So we definitely have processes in place to make sure we're monitoring, measuring yes. performance, and then that feeds into those cycles. So there are some accountability mechanisms. I wanted to switch tracks. <laughs> and, and ask about art cards, actually, because sure. uh, Colin and our team wrote about this recently. I was shocked at yeah. how high the percentage of adoption was already in art cards. Uh, on opening day, it didn't seem like the readers were working for the line, but it's been working great ever since. I mean, give us an update on art cards if you have one. Where Where for is sure. adoption at? What's coming? I know you to told us a little bit about what to expect in the future, but more immediately... Um, yeah. how's, how's the art cards looking? Yeah, we're really excited. So we have youth that are using uh, ARC now, which is great. And the school boards uh, are also involved uh, doing a phased rollout. Following that, we'll get into our seniors groups. 
Um, and then from seniors, uh, we'll look at our mm -hmm. low-income transit uh, users as well. Uh, the decisions around timing are regional decisions, so we work really closely with our regional partners, which is fun, just to figure out how it works across the region and um, how we phase in these next steps. In terms of validators, like any time there's a report of a validator issue, it's actioned. So just encourage people, let us know, and we're also doing spot checks as well uh, on those validators. We get it resolved. Uh, just encourage people, obviously, to tap on and off uh, so that we get, get good data. I, I'm wondering, do you have any estimate if we've lost revenue because of this rollout? And I'm thinking about buses in particular. It takes a few seconds to scan. Sometimes it just doesn't scan. The driver's like, I don't have time for this. Just get yeah. on the bus. So the good news is that it still records the transaction. It's just not giving you the confirmation. So there's no real loss revenue per se. As soon as the system is back up on that particular validator, it processes the transaction. Uh. Interesting. I'm not getting charged like 10 times when I try no. to scan it 10 <laughs> times though, right? No. <laughs> I promise. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, the uh, dreaded <laughs> tap off, which uh, on my way to the Valley <laughs> Line, I did not tap off the bus as I got off, uh, which is a common story. And on Edmonton Transit, doesn't particularly matter at this point because all fares are the same. Of course, that will change with zone-based fares. But you were saying before the show that maybe it won't? So originally when we talked about distance-based fairing, this was quite a while ago, probably 20, I want to say 2017, 2018. Our knowledge and understanding of those practices has definitely evolved. And what we've learned from other properties is that it's not supportive of equity. So if you're someone who is a multi-generational family, you're living in the suburbs, we're essentially going to charge you more and try and encourage you to use transit, but we're going to charge you more. The two things don't work together. So we want to encourage people to not be multi-car families <laughs> and incorporate transit. And that's why, you know, given the work we've been doing around equity and thinking about individual impacts on riders, we've decided to make that shift. Would you like to come join the podcast? Would you like to talk about your train experience? What do you think about the train? Uh, we're, we're seeing a young individual enjoying her Valley Line experience, and we can't help but get you on mic. If you'd like to come, feel free to say no. But what do you think about the train ride so far? It's very cool. Awesome. It is very cool, isn't it? Do you love these big windows giving you, like, excellent view? Yes. Where, where, where are you from? Where are you riding this train from? Um, Next stop, Davy Station. We started in the woods. In the woods, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and he headed downtown. Uh, before the train, how would you have gotten downtown? Did you have to jump on a bus? Um, no. We, um, drove. Uh, you drove. Victory and for the train. And now you're on a train. Well, that, I think, is a big congratulations for the train. What was your name? Lou. Lou, thanks so much for talking to us, Lou. It was great to oh, talk to you. Oh, that's amazing. This is what you get to do when speaking this municipally. This is the fun is part the about train... Podcast on a train. A credit, of course, to Councillor Salvador, who <laughs> it's her job to notice people engaging in the community. <laughs> was all all eyes. Um, uh, you you talked about the working together idea. So, uh, little known fact, I'm from Kitchener Waterloo. They built an LRT well before us. Um, they've seen billions in investment in redevelopment along the line of multifamily, high density, really high quality to housing. We've seen. A right, right-hand turner, right on um, red. I'm wondering. We we've yet to see quite that level in Edmonton. Why is that? And and what are we doing to make sure that that happens? Because 
really that's the point of this is it not it's it's one of the points one of the many points i think that um two things. I mean, I think we, we have seen the population increase around Century Park, for example. There are quite a few high-density uh, buildings there. I think for me, the, the missing piece is still around some of that urban design. So we have sort of transit-adjacent um, development, but not necessarily what I would consider transit-oriented development. But I think we also need to remember that a lot of what we're seeing downtown is also TOD, right? We're seeing more residential there with the existing connections. Um, I mean, what's happening at Stadium Yards is also phenomenal. Uh, again, maybe took more years than we wanted to see, but it's very exciting and more is coming. Um, I have my eyes on the uh, west side of Stadium Station, uh, which is, you know, an important bus staging point. But again, huge, huge opportunities there in the future. <laughs> and, and I think it also points to the interconnected nature between land use and transportation, um, which is why, um, I mean, I'm so excited about the zoning bylaw renewal that just passed as well, uh, to create those opportunities for uh, higher density mixed use development in areas where we want to see them along primary nodes and corridors right next to transit. Uh, right now, along significant stretches of the Valley Line Southeast, there are, there are still single family homes right next to transit stations. And I think, you know, it's it's important to have that conversation about what the evolution of those those areas will look like as we work towards a population of two million. And it will change. Yeah, I think I think we're sort of at um, there's always three steps when you're looking at regulatory reform. So uh, you know, for a while we wouldn't we wouldn't allow higher density, right? We had very very restrictive zoning. Uh, we've now moved really positively towards allowing uh, much greater diversity of housing and density. Um, you know, the next stage is now requiring that. Um, that's that's a bit of a different leap. Right now, we're at that stage of choice. You have the options. Um, so you're I, saying there will be 15-minute city boundaries in the future, not now. <laughs> The Deftly avoided. <laughs> we should just have, let's have a very long conversation about 15 minute communities. Um, but yes, yeah, so, I mean, I think, I think we have introduced some density minimums. So previously, even when you had a higher density zone, you could still build a single detached home in it. Whereas in our new zoning bylaw, that's not an option anymore. You have a minimum density requirement. I mean, unless you build some very dense minimum uh, single detached homes. So, so that is starting to move in that direction. Um, as Ashley said, I think this is getting, getting to this point in terms of uh, creating the allowance and the flexibility to do it. I think we'll see some really positive uptake. Uh, if we don't, if you know, for whatever reason we need to consider some other tools, we can get there, but I don't think we're there yet. So Ashley, you said the B word earlier in the episode and I regretted that I didn't jump on it Im immediately, but that was budget. Um, we have a pretty contentious... <laughs> oh, everyone around the room is saying, what B word? What are you talking about? I thought it was BRT. Me too. I thought it was BRT. So budget is coming up. We've got a 7.09 proposed increase from administration. Uh, this is up from the five-ish that the five-year budget will have uh, proposed. Um, and we're in a quite fiscally constrained situation, I think is a fair way to describe it. Um, transit, obviously, is not our biggest line item. We all on the podcast know exactly what that is. But it's a pretty big line item. It's usually number two. And increasing funding to transit, even by, you know, 5 or 10%, is a big ask. So how are we going to manage this in the next five years, uh, in the next even year with the upcoming budget, 
how are we going to manage these competing priorities of we don't want to increase taxes substantially, we don't want to cut services, and we do want to fund these things that we've all talked about on this beautiful line as we've gone from Millwoods and back? Yeah, absolutely. It's a big question. Uh, for me, it really comes down to being focused on, on the key priorities that this council has, has said that they're committed to. Um, and that is around delivering core services for Edmontonians, public transit, uh, taking action on climate change. And, you know, for me, I always think and root myself in the fact that, that public transit has been chronically underinvested in in our city for decades. This is not something that has just happened in the last few years. It has been building for a very long time. Um, and, and really not keeping pace with the growth of our, growth of our city. You know, as a, as a city, we have spread ourselves very thin and we're expecting um, transit service and, and a variety of other core services to do more with essentially less because of that spread. So that's what I'm going to be thinking about. Um, and, and going into this budget, I think it's also important to recognize where, where that increase comes from. Um, and I'm sure you've probably talked about this already, but, but a significant portion of that increase does come from um, the police salary settlement. Uh, and, and of course, public safety is, is a, a primary concern. But I think we need to look at um, that holistic picture again. What makes a, a city a, a great place to live, work and play? And transit's a big part of that. So I know that council meetings take a lot of time and money, like staff time, preparing reports, presenting to councillors. It's expensive. And I'm interested in saving the taxpayers some money. Carrie, you uh, have been asked to do more with less for 20 years. Um, what should these two councillors fund uh, to make your <laughs> I'll say, firstly, public transit is climate action. And I think a lot of times we think of it only as energy transition. But it's that's almost the smallest part of it. It's really about mode shift and it's getting people to use transit. How we do that is by investing in service. So anything we can do to increase our service hours, make it more reliable, make it more convenient, is good for riders, it's good for our climate goals as well, and good for the city plan. So as we think about growing, think about expanding our mass transit network. Again, I need all the things, active transportation, we need bus, you know, obviously this wonderful LRT service is important, but it's really those service factors that are gonna make a difference. So that would be where I lean. And as you said about the youth discussion, it was really about prioritizing. And in such a constrained budget time, where will you get the best outcomes? And I just couldn't hand to heart say, by doing this one thing, it's better to invest in that service. The research shows that the service elasticities are there. Uh, so it's a very compelling case, I think, if this is what we want to achieve. So you, I'm sure, have priority lists at ETS. If council tomorrow says, we're gifting you 50,000 service hours, where do they go? Yeah, it's really exciting. So we have neighborhoods now that are in on-demand, and it's a huge success story because they now reach the threshold for conventional service. So wait times have been high for on-demand service, driving all of us crazy. Um, it'll help us reduce wait times. We can graduate communities essentially to conventional service. We can either repurpose those hours to lower wait times. We could look at uh, adding more neighborhoods. We still have some neighborhoods not connected to the network at all. Um, so that would provide that opportunity as well. So that's one bucket. The other bucket is improving our frequencies. So we have some areas where we still don't have... Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we're not meeting our service standards. So being able to close some of those gaps on the service standard side with existing service is really important. And then we have new routes that we can put in place as well. So honestly, like because the gap is so big, 260,000 annual hours, it's a long list of probably 100 different changes we want to make. And we're just going to incrementally pick away at it depending on the resourcing that we get. 
you both mentioned climate action there a little bit. I love what you're saying about mode shift. I'm just very curious. Do we know what this thing runs on? Like, is there a coal plant somewhere powering this LRT line? Do you have any idea, you know, uh, <laughs> where the electricity is coming from? So we have, we have uh, substations and we have power systems that are in place. So it would, uh, so it works with the existing kind of infrastructure that we have. And I think overall, I don't want that to take away from what we can achieve with this. So if we wait for perfection, we're going to miss a lot of opportunity. Um, and it's similar on the hydrogen conversation, talking about the different types of hydrogen. Again, it's an important, in my opinion, monumental step to start somewhere. Yeah. And then we can make it better. Yeah. And I think of this in the same way. One of the incredible things about this train is uh, it's urban. It services the places where people need to go. Tim, you've got to get off pretty soon. I do. Well, uh, it was great talking to you. Um, congratulations on being Taproot Managing Editor. I uh, we kind of buried that lead off the top, but yeah. Thank you, thank you. Uh, you know, you were previously managing editor of the Metro before it fled Edmonton, I think might be a call. Uh, <laughs> but we're very excited to see what you do with Taproot, and I'm sure it'll be nothing but joy. Thank you, Troy. Uh, I'll let you yeah, scooch out and... Welcome oh, back hi, to the to podcast anytime. Thank you. Take care. <laughs> All right. Um, well, Mac. Okay. So, yeah. Just make sure to manage the cord. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is all staying in. Um, we're th this was us, uh, us shifting around. Uh, we've reached the end of our regular program, and before we get to the end, and I have to pack up. Uh, I figure we'd make the. Um, Counselors and official city staff uncomfortable by reading the rapid fire segment in front of them. And oh, we have one. We, we do. I, I wrote it on the way here. <laughs> There's a lot of horns along this line. Four, Four or five, yeah. <laughs> it's an adjustment period. It's an adjustment period. <laughs> well, Mac, uh, I'll hand you the script there. Uh, you can do number the one. first one. Okay. Uh, and so, uh, as we close out, and we're driving only like 30 kilometers an hour here, uh, we'll read the rapid fire. The Alberta government has announced plans for a sweeping overhaul of Alberta Health Services that would see the Unified Health Organization split into at least four smaller organizations with narrower mandates. Many, including the opposition NDP, have been critical of the plan, but Danielle Smith is defending the idea, saying, quote, There's a lot of historical evidence of better outcomes simply by switching the management organization responsible. Take the switch from DynaLife to Alberta Precision Labs as an example. Couldn't have gone better. All my idea. A beacon in the shape of a cowboy hat shone into the sky Tuesday evening as Edmonton requested aid from Calgary to capture a cow that escaped from farm fair. Unfortunately, after a several-hour chase from Edmonton police through a couple central neighborhoods, the police realized that cowboy aid was not to come. They were still hungover from the last day of Stampede back in July. With wildfire season coming to a close on October 31st, Alberta Forestry and Parks Minister Todd Lewin is telling Albertans to see the silver lining, saying, quote, The 2.2 million hectares burned have produced so much ash that Alberta is now able to diversify its economy by getting into the potash industry. The minister was not available for a follow-up from confused reporters as he scampered out into the blackened forest dual-wielding some saucepans to scoop up the ash. Speaking honestly, of course, is a production and a product, and what is the thing I'm supposed to say, Mac? A publication. Publication. Starts with a P. Nailed it. Uh, of Taproot Edmonton, of which you met the managing editor. Now that you have a managing editor, 
your role is full-time business daddy now, right? It's well, mine already was, but yeah, Karen gets to move out of the editorial a little bit more into helping to grow the business. This is about capacity building for us. So having Stephanie join recently with her lovely radio voice and now Tim as well uh, means that our team can, can do more and Karen and I can help continue to grow the team. Well, that's great to hear. We will still hear you on the podcast, though, right? You're oh, still, yeah. You're not going to abandon us? Yeah. Great. Yeah. Um, that's all I got. Um, someone's aggressively pointing. Oh, well, I think that was something we rezoned, right? Yeah, it is. Very exciting. <laughs> See? We're, we're, Transit-oriented yeah, development. We're taking the oh, we're just driving through uh, Holyrood at yeah. this point in time. R8. Strathern. Strathern. <laughs> <laughs> need a live map for Troy here. Uh, look. The map, right there. Oh, there we go. So I guess that's actually, Ashley, a probably success story at this point because Holyrood, I think, was acrimonious to get rezoned um, and probably didn't help that, you know, the Valley Line didn't start for three years after the project was completed. Is there a bit of, like, an I told you so moment happening right now? Because I know when we were riding on the train, my partner said, that building's huge. When did that go up? In response to Holyrood Gardens. Um, how's... The community is the community still salty about it. <laughs> you know, I think that Hollywood Gardens in particular, there there are still some folks who um, are not pleased with with the process, you know, and and possibly the end product. Um, mm. But but I mean, density along an LRT line is expected, absolutely. And uh, we just you know rode by a project uh, over here in Strathern, an RA8 that's going to be a sort of a mid-rise style building um, mixed use you know some residential a little bit of commercial and retail and, and you know these are these are the types of projects that are going to make this line even more attractive like people are going to be able to live along the line they're going to be able to hop off and get a coffee uh, and spend time along the line so um, and that is one that we we approved in our term so that is a recent project uh, that this council said yes to so as we're crossing, we're heading down Connors Road on 95th, the passing the old Ralph's Chicken location. Uh, I see. I know where I am. Um, <laughs> one of the things I'm looking around and not seeing, in addition to all the single-family homes, is gravel parking lots. And I know once we cross the bridge, that's going to change quite rapidly. Um, we have a report coming back soon-ish in the next few months about gravel parking lots. It could have been framed more aggressively, I think. It could have been framed less aggressively. What is Council's thinking on the gravel parking lot issue? I know from administration's perspective, there's been a disinclination to take action here. Well, I think I think when you look at it from a traditional enforcement perspective, uh, it's it's a losing proposition. Uh, the amount of enforcement resources we'd need to go out and close down every lot, enforce, that would go to courts. Um, you know, I, I don't think that's worth it. But we um, we asked staff to kind of go back to the drawing board and look at some more creative options that we might be able to consider. So for example, licensing fees. Um, so you don't need a permit for that. Um, but it would mean that you would pay your fair share of a business improvement levy. Um, the same thing that you would pay for a business license. Also looking at incentives um, so that if you have a gravel lot versus a nicely paved and landscaped one, you pay a higher uh, registration fee. Um, yeah, just looking looking for those creative solutions is, I think, the way forward. Um, I like that idea. Make it look good or pay. Yeah. Right? Like, 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. That was the other nuance too. Is um, we can remove development permit requirements to do those upgrades. So that's that has been. You know, there are owners right now who do want to make their properties look more attractive, but they're not able to because they can't get a development permit because they don't have the zoning for it and it's a bit of a cascade. So this would actually open up that opportunity. We can remove the development permit requirement to do that landscaping and upgrade it. Uh, so I think it could be a win-win all around. But yeah, Ashley really got the ball rolling. So yeah, I have strong feelings about the the gravel parking lots in our downtown. <laughs> um, but no, to Anne's point, I mean, it's really about finding the correct tool for us to be able to move forward. I mean, at the end of the day, we all know that gravel parking lots in the core of our city, it's not the highest and best use. Like we want to see buildings on those sites. Um, but but in the interim, we need to raise the bar. I mean, some of these sites, they're uneven surfaces. They're, they're not even safe in some instances. So uh, raise the bar, at least make it look nice, um, make it safe. And, um, and ultimately, we want to see them phased out, though. So speaking of phasing out, um, we have a CRL in the downtown that has been the subject of some debate with uh, office conversions in the recent weeks. Uh, council has, or committee has suggested that a report should come back uh, in a 4-1 vote. Um, but previously along the line, the capital line, we did have CRLs as a way of spurring transit-oriented development that had limited success so far. Um, are we anticipating CRLs on the new Valley Line from Millwoods to West Ed in any way? Is that a funding structure we want to be pursuing? Uh, you know, it's it's a model that I'm really open to, but we're, we're currently not able to under provincial legislation. So there's a, a cap on that. We are at that cap. So at this point, we don't have that tool available to us. Probably for the best. Can I add that commentary, Troy? <laughs> you can do whatever you want. What? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I... Well, I mean, I, I, I say that a little bit jokingly, but the quarters and Belvedere have not exactly been as successful as I think people perceive the downtown one to be. And I know these are long-term things. Like, you know, there's a lot of... There's decades before you can really, truly say whether or not you got the investment or not. Absolutely. I mean, I think, and I think that we uh, we learned a lot from those first few CRLs. I think the amount of value we've been able to capture in the downtown is significant. Uh, it's it's been a really positive success story there. I think future CRLs we'd look at differently, but um, yeah, I think they're still a worth worthwhile tool uh, to have in the toolbox. Uh, that noise you're hearing in the background, that very faint noise, that's us going through the tunnel. It's real quiet. And that little squeak is like a familiar sound if you ride the LRT, right? Yeah. It's like it makes you feel at home. Between on the new Corona and Government Center, this is this is the exact sound I hear. Yeah. Every so day. Yeah. as we close out, we're just heading up. Everyone, quickly go around. What's your favorite thing about the Valley Line LRT now that it's open? Uh, I'll start. My favorite thing about the Valley Line LRT is that it opened at 5.15 a.m. Rational people could have started service at any time in the day, and we chose 5.15 a.m. on a Saturday when no one except the 600 crazy people would be there. That's my favorite thing. I mean, my daughter, my youngest, she's waiting her whole life for this train, literally. Uh, and we walk by, and she's in the stroll, and she sees the train, and she gets so excited, like just overjoyed. And it was hilarious that when she finally got on the train, it was like, what? Where am I? What is happening? <laughs> she sort of lost that excitement. But I guess what I'm saying is um, all the young folks who have been waiting for this, the young kids we see on the train right now, there was a whole bunch on the weekend so, taking the train. The show, guys. I, <laughs> I think that's amazing that they get to ride this now while they're growing up. Yeah, I think 
you know, my favorite thing uh, was was waking up early and sitting on the train all day, walking around, hearing the stories from Edmontonians and, and how this is truly, in some cases, going to change the lives of a lot of people. Um, whether that is being able to go downtown when you previously hadn't been able to, um, being able to have access to your city is just so critically important. Um, so those are those are the stories that really, really get me. And that's the thing that I'm most excited about. And then on my end, it's sentimental, but it's the riders, like just having access. And I'm proud of the whole network. It's an integrated network. But just knowing, to your point, how many doors are open now for people, literally and figuratively, um, and just enabling that mobility across the city, like it's, it's emotional for me just to think about the thousands of people using this line and making it part of their daily lives. That's what transit's about. Like transit is about the riders and the community. And I'm just so proud that they have access to this. I think it's fantastic. And close us out. Uh, well, everyone's already taken my answers, but you know, seeing, I, I was on the 515 train, which was great. Uh, but the first time I was off the train seeing a full train go by, like it brought tears to my eyes. So it is the riders, it is the people. Um, I also love this idea of public luxury. Um, this is a beautiful train. It is a wonderful riding experience and it is available to every Edmontonian who needs it or wants it. And it's uh, a wonderful thing. We're passing Churchill Station, so we're in a rad, mad dash to get this over. Uh, did you know that the number of Albertans experiencing food insecurity jumped from 12.3% in 2011 to 20.3% in 2022? Each year, the Edmonton Community Foundation and Edmonton Social Planning Council produce a report called Vital Signs to measure how the community is doing. This year's report focuses on food security and how it has changed over the last 10 years and where we are today. And before you leave, shout, and I'm speaking municipally. Uh, speaking, I'm speaking I'm municipally. Ann I'm Ann Stevenson, and I'm speaking <laughs> Thank you, Ann. That's going to fit right into the edit. Um, and in the middle of the ad, uh, this year's report focuses on food security and how it has changed over the last 10 years and where we are today. You can, you can see the latest report at ecfoundation.org slash vital signs. And Mac, I think that has finished everything we need to do. I think that worked well. There's but one last thing to do, and we're going to try it with, what is this, five people? Yeah. I love it. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. I'm Mike. I'm Ashley. I'm Carrie. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Municipally.